Thanks so much, Carol. And please keep uh, 1 Peter 4 open. We'll be looking at that together. Uh, let me commit our time together, uh, whether you're here or whether you're at home, uh, to our Lord as we listen to his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we just heard in that magnificent reading from Isaiah, uh, you have stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. And we know that you know the ways of we, your people, intimately. Um, and so, Father, especially this morning, we pray that you might strengthen our weak knees um, and give our hearts courage, but we ask for a greater blessing than this. We ask that you might give us great joy as we stand for Christ in this world and live for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I'm reading the Bible, the, the, the reaction of people most of the time to what I'm reading seems to make sense to me. Um, I can understand them. I can imagine, as I'm sure you do, putting yourself in the same situation as the people that you're reading about and, and imagine doing probably the same thing. And so, for instance, an angel appears in front of you and, and you collapse to the ground in terror. Well, I get that. I reckon if I was in the same place, I'd do the same thing. Um, Jesus miraculously heals someone. You were there. What would you do? Well, everyone there in the, in the Bible starts talking to one another in amazement and asks, who is this man? I get that. I get that. And even the fact that the disciples change magnificently from being scared people who were afraid of the authorities and hiding from them to becoming bold preachers and the difference is because they've come face to face with the resurrected Jesus and so they go, <laughs> I know what I know, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, you're not going to cow me into, into submission. Yeah, I get that too, I get that too. But I've always found it hard to imagine myself doing the same thing that the disciples did in Acts chapter 5 and feeling the same way. Now, you might remember when we did Acts earlier this year, and I made a similar point about it, in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are arrested again by the chief priests for preaching about the risen Jesus. And again, as they had in chapter 4, they refused to stop doing it. And so far, nothing strange, I get that as I've mentioned. It, it's what happens next that I find strange and hard. The chief priests are so furious that they want to kill the apostles. But they're dissuaded by their number, one of their number, a man called Gamaliel, and instead they flog the apostles and release them. And this flogging, you've got to understand, is probably 39 lashes at the hands of angry men. So we're talking about severe pain and abuse here. And yet look what the apostles do when they're released verse 41 of chapter 5 of Acts, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They leave rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You get what disgrace is, don't you? Humiliation, public shaming, rebuke, insult and in their case, actual violence. Now, I can understand them enduring it, I can understand them being comforted or finding peace in the fact that they were copying it for Jesus, but I find it hard to relate to them leaving the place, high-fiving one another and celebrating. I just can't imagine, or I struggle to imagine myself doing the same thing in the same circumstances. What about you? But you know, that's, that's the strange paradox of Christian joy. 
Because on the surface, it doesn't seem to make sense. Rejoicing and suffering seem completely incompatible experiences. And yet, there they are. How are we to make sense of this? I mean, clearly the, the apostles understood something. At right to the depths of their hearts that would make them react this way that I might struggle to understand. What, what is it? What do they get? Well, one of those very apostles who walked away with a joy-filled heart and a blood-scarred back wrote the passage that we're looking at today. And surely 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19 is one of the strangest, most seemingly contradictory passages in Scripture. Because it's a passage that speaks of fiery ordeal and trial and sufferings and insults and judgment. But it's a passage that is about joy and glory and blessing and comfort and praise and faith. But it's not about joy, this is the amazing thing, it's, it's not about joy instead of those hardships or even joy despite those hardships, it's about joy because of them, that there is something actually in those challenges themselves that should fuel hope and produce joy in us. So if that seems bizarre... <laughs> and unfathomable for you, then listen in. Because Peter is going to help us view our trials and our hardships as Christians through a very different lens. Now, the first two parts of the passage stress the positive implications of Christian suffering and both make the point that our trials actually mark us out even more clearly as the beloved people of God. So, look at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. The cause for joy is coming in a moment, but Peter begins by keeping it very real. Suffering, even intense suffering, for your faith should not be viewed as foreign, but as natural to the Christian experience. Peter is saying, don't be surprised if at times you suffer for your faith. Now, both the word surprised and the word for strange in that verse have at their root the Greek word for foreign. So, for the Christian who happens to be a foreigner in this world, an alien and stranger in it, our suffering should not be seen as foreign or strange, but as expected, even as familiar. If you're a Christian, such trials will at various times be your companion because you are who you are. It's the way it is. But it's important that I say here that these are not the insensitive words of some hard nut just saying, suffering is normal. You know, suck it up, get used to it. It's not, it's not that kind of message. These are heartfelt, these are sincere, these are actual encouragements 
of an apostle to his fellow Christians because he's wanting to help them while they're wrestling with the challenges of their lives. Indeed, when you read Dear Friends there, it's literally beloved. Beloved. See, he's not belittling or minimising the experience of those who suffer because as we read about in Acts 5, he experienced suffering as a Christian more directly than most. He'd die for it eventually. He knows the pain and the hardship that his readers are experiencing. But the way he talks about it here is significant. The fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Now, the NIV is really helpful in capturing this imagery here because Peter is speaking about the burning that they are experiencing. That's a, that's a powerful, evocative image of pain. Now, before we move on, I think it's important that we do not limit our understanding of fiery ordeal here so that um, to, to that is merely that is applied to us from outside by other people, by a hostile world. But also recognise that which is endured on the inside, from the war that rages within us. Because, you know, both of these are in the context of 1 Peter. The, the animosity and opposition of the unbelieving world, but also, you'll notice all the way through, the continuing in, continual inner struggle not to give in to the sinful desires that are waging war against your soul. I mean, think about the experiences in your own life. Fiery trial is, is often a fair description of both those sorts of things, isn't it? You know, you think about the emotional energy that's required to deal when you're being treated unjustly or you're being persecuted or, or the social pressure that's put on you for, for being a Christian, that's substantial. Fiery trials are a fair description of that. And so is also the wrestle with our own impulses and the battles within our own conscience, the frustrations of failure, the guilt of falling short, the conflict when there's doubts, the longing to overcome, the determination to do better next time. But fiery trial, can I say here, is more than just a vivid image to talk about hardship. He's using the same imagery that he actually used back in chapter 1 and he's making the very same point that he made there. So having just told them in chapter 1 about the living hope that they've been born into and the inheritance that's been kept for them that'll never perish, spoil or fade and the reality that they are shielded by God's power, in the meantime, this is what Peter wrote in chapter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the fiery trial is like the refining fire that purifies gold. For it is for their testing. It is for the strengthening of their faith that this is happening from God. And so what Peter is saying here is not so much 
what will produce joy, that's coming next, but what he's dealing with to start off with is what will prevent despair, what will, or a sense of crisis when something, when you're going, wow, what, what's, what's this that I'm experiencing here? You know, it's a be prepared for these trials. Don't let them shock you or, th- or throw you off when, when they happen. Don't let it freak you out or have you sitting stunned with the question, why is this happening to me? Suffering comes with the territory of being a Christian. It's not foreign to us, it's actually part of our formation as Christian people. And that is what leads us towards joy. You see, suffering is not something to be experienced in some negative, fatalistic way, you know, like the, the reality of our mortality that you can, you've just got to deal with. Trials may come with the territory, but they also cement us in that territory. And that is a very good thing. It's, it's like a long-anticipated journey to a place that you haven't been before. You've planned your holiday, and so you're excited. And you're so full of hope. You're flying over unknown territory, but you've had a look at the maps. And as you look out of your plane window, you start to see some recognisable shapes, right? A, a peninsula here, a mountain range there, a famous river and you know that you're on the right flight path. You know your destination approaches as you pass each of these things and your heart wells up. What are the landmarks along the Christian flight path? Our journey to our new eternal home. Can I tell you what it isn't? It's not acceptance from the world around us and an easy life. It's not comfort with our sin and the realising an indulgence in our earthly desires. If you look out the window of your life and that's what you see all over the place, then your plane is on the wrong flight path. It's heading somewhere else. But if heaven is your goal, then this is what Jesus says is the view out the plane window. Luke chapter 9. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you're facing hostility for being a Christian, if you're feeling the pain, of trying to put to death your sinful nature, if you're faithfully striving for godliness because you're taking up your cross daily and following Jesus, well, the unbeliever doesn't experience those things. These are continual, wonderful, familiar reminders that you're on the right plane. Praise be to God. These trials can be fiery, but they are confirming as well. Suffering for being a Christian identifies us more strongly with the one 
that we love so much we've given our lives to Him with the Lord Jesus, even joins us, fellowship with Him in His suffering. We are close to Him and experience that closeness. And just as we share in His hardship, we're also going to share in His glory. And that is something to rejoice in. Look at verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Now, the word overjoyed there is actually two words. It's literally that you may rejoice with extreme joy. So, you get the very clear message that Peter is saying, this is big. It's not saying, oh, I think you might be... Rejoice with extreme joy. The trial might be fiery, but beloved, the the glory will be far greater still and your trials for Him now reinforce that you do indeed belong with Him and you are being prepared right now for glory. See, with Christ, suffering is the precursor to glory. That's what it signals for you. And the one who has suffered deeply for the cause rejoices more deeply when victory comes. So let me move to an extraordinarily trivial example of this. Um, You know, in a weird way, it's like being a Manly Sea Eagles fan. All right, Manly and therefore its fans have copped it from all quarters since the 70s, all right? So much so that there's a well-known phrase in, in rugby league quarters, I go for two teams, my team and whoever is playing Manly. Manly is the team that everyone else hates And can I say as a Manly fan, that's what makes the victories, when they happen, um, all the sweeter. You know, when you're stuck by them, when they're copping it, or when they are languishing due to their own dysfunctional mismanagement, you get a far greater joy when they win. But of course, Manly is a football team, and so in the grand scheme of things, could not mean less <laughs> in, the, in the real world, right? And what's more, if you suffer for a football team, you've got no guarantee that there will be a victory in the end. Just ask anyone who supports Parramatta. But when we suffer for Christ, we suffer knowing that victory is inevitable. Christ has already risen. It's happened. And He will return in glory. And we will see it. So we can rejoice when we suffer for Christ because trials and testing might come with the territory but so does glory. And Peter makes a similar point now about the specific suffering that we experience at the hands and particularly in this case from the mouths of others. So if the paradox of Christian suffering is that we can rejoice in it, the paradox of being insulted is that it's actually a blessing. Um, Verse 14, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, busybody. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter says, look, there is nothing noble about suffering as a criminal or as a troublemaker. He's already said this, on multiple occasions through the letter, that if you suffer for those reasons, then you're just actually getting what you deserve. You don't deserve a medal. But if you're insulted or abused because you're bearing the name of Jesus Christ in the world, 
because you're living for Him, then that is something to praise God for. Now, notice what Peter does here. He's actually disarming one of the world's great weapons, the weapon of social violence that we in this world wield very readily. Insult, abuse, ostracism, exclusion, mockery, shaming. He actually disarms that by completely transforming the way the Christian actually hears it. What is meant as an insult is understood by the Christian as blessing. Now, back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, there's a famous incident where a Moabite king pays a guy called Balaam to curse Israel. But each time Balaam goes to curse Israel, God changes his words so that he ends up blessing Israel. And eventually Balaam just goes, well, he owns the reality of the situation and he says to the Moabite king, who's a bit annoyed at him, he's going, listen, if the, God, if the Lord is going to bless them, what can I do about it? If he's resolved to do that, that's what's going to happen. Peter is saying to Christians that when you're being abused by people for your faith in Christ, the truth is that they're actually blessing you. They're acknowledging that you belong to Jesus and that's the greatest blessing that there is and that means that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you and I love that expression, rests on you. It captures the idea that the Spirit of God has settled down and has made His home and then He's not going anywhere. Kind of like um, a lightning rod. Okay, so, so lightning can strike all over the place. Well, so does the hostility of the sinful world. It's not necessarily discriminating. But sin will express itself in, in every different direction and everyone can get hit by it, right? But a lightning rod draws the strikes because of its prominence. It stands out and, and so even more strikes will come. Well, the one who belongs to God, the one upon whom His Spirit rests, has a prominence, a holiness that will draw the hostility of the sinful world. And so, of course, more strikes will come our way. But that is a reminder that God is with us. And so, that should completely transform the way we, we hear hostile words when they come. They're given with the intent to embarrass us or to ridicule us. But the Christian hears them entirely differently. Is this meant to hurt me? If you insult me because of Jesus, you honour me. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. But standing firm for Christ when it is hard confirms you're no fair-weather Christian. In fact, even the world is acknowledging that you're His. How about that? Even the world's going, well, you're obviously Christian. So much so that you cop abuse for it. It's like you're the team running out onto the field in enemy territory, proudly wearing the badge of the one that you represent, 
And so for all of the abuse and insults that hit your ears, you know that back home, people are cheering for you, supporting you, proud that you're not ashamed to be playing for them. If you cop it for Christ, God knows about it. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you're not alone. He's with you all the way through it and he knows that you are going through this for his sake. And that's not something that God doesn't see and delight in and reward. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, are you facing opposition from the world around you in your life at the moment? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to cop it for Jesus because you know what he's done. You know how great and worthy he is and you know that nothing you do is more than what he has already shown that he is prepared to do representing you when he did that on the cross. When you suffer for Christ, you demonstrate your solidarity with him and your allegiance to him is being proved and that's good. Well, it's now that Peter shifts his argument from the positive reason for rejoicing because of trials to its serious and sobering counterpart. A counterpart that's already been anticipated when Peter went back to the time of the flood at the end of chapter 3. And that counterpart is this. In time everyone will be refined by God. So the question for each person is simply this, is will it be for you in this life or will it be for you in the next? Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, when we think of judgment, we tend to think of the pronouncing of a verdict and the ensuing punishment from that. Guilty, I sentence you to life imprisonment. And sometimes in the Bible, that is specifically what is being meant by God's judgment at some points is God's condemnation. It's used that way. But that's not what it means here. Here, the judgment that is being described is the actual assessing the process of examining the evidence. All will be assessed in this way, but this assessment begins with God's own family, literally with the household of God. So now is the time when God's people are proven and tested. We will, will we stand or will we run? Will we trust Him unashamed? Or will we abandon him for our own comfort? Suffering for Christ is the refiner's fire. We undergo our fiery trial now. And if God refines us and purifies us now, 
What will be the end result for those who don't obey the gospel? Whose sins are not forgiven and who are not being made righteous by Christ but remain ungodly and rebellious. When you suffer as a Christian, God is assessing you, as it were. The Christian who stands for Christ, even under opposition and trial, is proven. Such a testing at times is searching, it's hard, it's fiery. And so the Christian needs to reflect on what will become of the ungodly and the sinner when eventually they undergo the same examination which they will. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way, quoting um, the Old Testament, he says, My son, do not, Proverbs 3, uh, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son or as a daughter. And then later on he says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. For those who have been trained by it. C.S. Lewis once put it this way in his book, Surprised by Joy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man and his compulsion is our liberation. That is why the Christian who suffers for Christ can rejoice because of their trials. That testing is proving them genuine as a son and daughter of the living God and therefore reinforcing to them the reality of their salvation. And that is why they praise God that they bear that name the name that will see them safely through to the eternal life that is beyond. So if that is the reality when we suffer for Christ, how how should we act then? Well, Peter's word to his readers is God's word to us. Verse 19, and it's nothing new to what he said the entire letter. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You know, often when um, people are about to face a significant challenge in their life, they ask questions of somebody who's already gone through that before, right? And they often will say, look, what's the secret to getting through this? What's the secret to doing that? What's the key? Like there's going to be some sort of hidden formula that will make the challenge straightforward, some special tip that's going to make all of the difference. But often the answer that comes back when those questions are asked is, well, Just keep doing the basics right. And it's the same thing for the Christian. When it comes to standing through this time of testing and proving, the Christian should keep doing what they already know that God would have them do because he made it clear to them. And you can see those two things there. First, we commit ourselves to our faithful creator. Now, that should be nothing new for the Christian, should it? God is your faithful creator creator. He knows you inside out and he is always faithful. Maybe my encouragement to you would be go home and read Psalm 139 again. Commit yourself to your faithful creator, trust him. You know in 1 Corinthians 10 we read, 
no temptation, and the word temptation there is exactly the same word Peter's using for trial, testing, has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So we're to entrust ourselves to God and certainly we do that with prayer, don't we? When those challenges hit and even when they aren't, when we're waiting for the next one because we are expecting it to happen, we commit ourselves to him in prayer. Lord, I am yours. I trust you. Keep me faithful. Help me to stand for Jesus. But we also entrust ourselves to him by continuing to do good. To continue to stand and represent him in this world. And even though this is what will make us stand out, even though this is what will expose us to more hardship, we're to continue to do it. Like the very first verse of Isaiah 51, a word that was there to encourage Israel in their hardship. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Well, that rock for us is not Abraham, it's Jesus. Look to him. Don't give up. Continue to do what is good because it's good because it's what your faithful creator would have you do and because it marks you out as a follower of Jesus Christ and his is a name worth bearing. Amen.